0: All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Lord willing, we will finish this chapter today. 27 through 31 is what we're going to cover. And we can see that uh, we're making some progress. We're seeing uh, an argument that Paul has been developing as, as he's gone through the book of Romans, that in the first chapter... After introductory statements and and uh purpose statements and direction statements and things like that, in one uh, one through fifteen and then on into seventeen, after that, he begins to talk about man, and it's not a flattering picture as he unpacks for us the nature of pagan man in the end of chapter 1 and then he dives into the nature of those who have had all the benefits of Judaism. And yet he demonstrates from looking in chapter 2 and then on into chapter 3 that really all Jew and Gentile alike are guilty before God. That they are all on the same playing field as it were. And all are guilty, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and then of course, he he brings that to a very powerful kind of conclusion there or crescendo in, in chapter 3, verses 10 through about 18. And, and he just drills that point home again and again and again by looking to Old Testament passages, by pulling out these Old Testament passages to remind to remind the readers that they've heard this before. This isn't new with Paul. If you pay attention to your Old Testament, you see that these things are true even there. And so he strings several of them together and the effect is devastating. Devastating. So that all are to realize their guilt before God. There's no one who's a little more innocent, a little uh, shorter trip to, to glory or something like that, that really... We are all on the same playing field of guilt. And then, of course, in 21 through 26, we spent a a couple of weeks unpacking this because it's such a powerful and clear exposition of the gospel and what the gospel really is. We looked at the heart of the gospel and we looked at the anatomy of the gospel. We wanted to talk about what is accomplished by the gospel, what's really going on in the gospel, and then we talked about how it works, the pieces, and how they fit together, and we saw that a lot of questions were answered in that part. Well, now we come to this concluding paragraph in the chapter, verses 27 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to see three results of the gospel. So we begin reading in chapter 3 and verse 27. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see, there are consequences, there are results, there are things that come from understanding the gospel. There are consequences that flow out of it. It's a little bit like the invention of of the movable type printing press in the mid-15th century that uh, changed the world, that prepared things, prepared the world uh, in essence for, among other things, the Reformation. So that now all of a sudden Luther's 95 theses that he posted on the door of uh, uh, Wittenberg Castle Church in in October uh, 31st, 1517 could be suddenly published and spread widely quickly and cheaply, so that word now travels quickly in a, in a new way like it never has before. And, and so now, all of a sudden, because of the printing press, these debates that Luther and others have uh, back and forth between the Catholic Church and the, and the Reformers, those debates, that information is disseminated broadly so that within just a few days, people are reading about that stuff in London. That's an unheard of thing. Of course, it's not the uh, level of communication that we have now where you could pull out your phone and, and send a message to Antarctica, I presume. And it would be there very shortly, right? But this is a, this is a game changer for them, right? And it made uh, possible, humanly speaking, the Reformation. And, and that's a little bit what our discussion today is like. It, these effects of the gospel, the fact of the gospel of justification by faith changes various things. And so Paul wants to look at three of those things today that we're going to, to look at. And we, we may be surprised by one or two of these things. We see, first of all, verses 27 and 28, what about our pride? What, what of our pride? And he says in 27 and 28, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. He says boasting is excluded. And he's speaking in a particular context here. He's already referred to boasting several times in our book. And in chapter 2, he talks a couple of different times. In 17 and in 23, he mentions a couple of times about this boast that the Jews had. That, That God had chosen them, and so they have a boast in God. And God had given them the law. And so they boasted in the law. And so they had these advantages. And when you look at a church like the Roman church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles together struggling sometimes against one another, those issues come to the front where you have the Jews who say, you know, this is really our faith and you are Johnny come lately. And so therefore, there's a little attitude perhaps of superiority. We talked uh, months ago about the background of this church and that that it initially had probably been founded by people who had been at Pentecost, had traveled back to Rome after Pentecost. So they were Jews who were believers from the very earliest days. They, they come back and they establish a church in Rome. So it's primarily a Jewish church to begin with. And as the gospel spreads, as we saw happen all through the book of Acts, Gentiles are added to the church. So now there are a few Gentiles and, and Jews, but it's predominantly a Jewish church. But then one of the emperors had had enough of the uh Jewish people, or perhaps uh it was the Christians, because there was it was in response to some rioting that had gone on, but uh but I, I believe it was in in uh, A.D. forty nine. Claudius, I believe his name was, expelled the Jews from Rome, including these Jewish Christians. So here they were at church on one one day, and it was a predominantly Jewish church, and the next day they were all expelled and they were gone for several years three or four or five years. And so what happens when all of the Jews leave? Well, now it becomes a predominantly Gentile church, and it grows, and of course Gentiles would predominantly reach out to Gentiles, especially since all the Jews had been booted out. Then, when that law is changed, at Claudius's death, they come back in, and now here you have people who planted this church, who've been exiled for being Jewish. Now they come back into their own church, and they feel like outsiders. Because now it's predominantly a Gentile church. And so you have these struggles. And we can understand the sociological causes of those struggles. Well, it, part of that struggle apparently has to do with this concept of boasting that this is, this is really our faith, might, uh, the Jews might say. And you've been included, but it's really ours. And so you see there's this struggle. And, and Paul's going to say, no, um, uh, what happens to our boasting? It's excluded It's not even a possibility anymore. He says the law of faith cancels boasting. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. I just want to say in passing right here that it's it takes a lot of attention, it takes a lot of effort to determine what is meant by the word law throughout Paul. Anywhere you run across it, frankly you've got to pay attention because it can mean several things. It might mean the Old Testament in general. That can be referred to as the law. Or it might mean the Mosaic law. That can be referred to as the law. Or, and I think what's going on in this instance, it refers to a principle. The concept, the very concept of faith as opposed to the very concept of works. So when he says law of works and law of faith that's what I understand him in in this verse to be talking about. This principle of faith versus the principle of works. And what Paul is saying is that the very nature of this salvation that we have, the very nature of justification by faith rules out even the possibility of boasting. The, The essence of justification by faith is that we receive by faith what could never have been done on our own. We receive it by faith. We couldn't have done it. It was done by Christ, and we receive it. It's not something we could have accomplished, and that's the law of faith. Faith is at work, and thus it cancels boasting. He continues on. And he explains why. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justification is by faith. It's not by works. And I think this, uh, this verse right here is one of the clearest, simplest, and boldest statements about justification. Justification. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Had he just said, we're justified by faith. That would be a true statement. That would be a true statement. We are justified by faith. But what does that leave open? Well, to someone who might look at that, for example, this is a large part of the discussion of what was going on during the Reformation. Because the the Roman Catholic Church believed that justification is by faith plus these works that we need to do. There are other things that we have to fill in. There's something else that needs to be done. So yeah, justification is by faith and something else. And the Reformation was fought over the fact that there can be no something else. Justification is by faith alone. And so actually when Luther translated uh, these verses into, into German, he actually inserted the word alone in there because the theology requires it, even though the word isn't there in the Greek. And so he says, we hold that one is justified by faith. Luther added the word alone. So I'd, though that may not be the best translation, perhaps, theologically it's right because of the words that follow. And this is the aspect of the, uh, that the Reformation was fighting over, is, yes, we are justified by faith, and there can be nothing added. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. There can be no addition to justification by faith. That's what they were arguing about. That's what they were talking about. And that's a clear distinction. And that may sound like a fine one because when we hear that justification is by faith, of course we agree. But he adds on to be extra clear. It's by faith. It's not by works of law. It's apart from, separate from any works of the law. And so Paul makes very clear by inserting the words apart from works of the law. Our works don't play any role in making us right before God. We are made right before God purely by faith, apart from any works of the law that we might do. I can think of several situations, instances when I've been sharing the gospel with people. And if you share the gospel with someone who's, who's from a religious background and you get to this point of justification by faith, and you point out it's there's no boasting. Boasting's been excluded. These things are done so that no man may boast. Ephesians chapter 2, also Paul. You say that to someone, and, and someone from a, a religious background, whatever it might be, they, they might say, well, of course we don't boast. We don't boast in what we do. Right? Salvation is by faith, plus some things that we do, but we, of course we can't boast in those things. Right? What Paul is arguing here is that if there is something for you to boast in, in your conception of how a person is made right before God, if there is anything possible in your understanding of how a person is made right with God, in which you can boast, that is not justification by faith. You are relying on Jesus and this thing that you did, whatever that thing might be. And in some religions, in some traditions, it's more or less complex, more or less involved. But it's Jesus plus this thing that I did makes the whole equation work. And what he is saying here is that it is what Jesus has accomplished. It is by faith alone, apart from works that you've accomplished. Apart from anything that you've added apart from your contribution. And so the application for us this morning is to think about our own understanding of the gospel. We talked in Sunday school this morning about what are we relying upon? What are we ultimately trusting on? What are we looking at? Do you purely uh, rely purely upon the accomplished work of Christ on your behalf in order to be justified before God? Or do you have something in your mind, some contribution of your own, some piece that you added, something that would sweeten the pot for God, something that would make the equation work? If you are trusting in Jesus and yourself in some way, then you are not trusting truly in Jesus. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so what about our pride? What can we point to that was our own doing? Well, the first result of the gospel of justification by faith is that anything of our own that we could have pointed to and patted ourselves on the back for doing to inherit eternal life has been taken away. We no longer even have that boast when we understand the gospel correctly. So we move on, 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So what of the old barrier? What of that old barrier between Jew and Gentile? That's going to come up again in discussion, particularly in Ephesians. But here we see, by looking at understanding their own background, and as we read through the book of Romans, we see there was a struggle between Jew and Gentile, there was still some manner of barrier between the two. It existed in this church, and so Paul's addressing that, and, and so the question comes up, okay, what of that old barrier? And so he asks, or is God the God of Jews only? Well, he says, first of all, God is one. God is one. Any Jewish child growing up would have known the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I call that the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Everybody knew it. It was sort of the foundation. It was the basis of their understanding, of their doctrine. And so what does that teach? God is one. What did Jesus often get in trouble for, for saying? Well, he equated himself with God and people didn't like that because God is one, right? And so God is one. And so he's, what he's doing is he's pointing them back to their own doctrine, their own understanding. And he's, he's talking about Jew and Gentile alike and conversion for them, justification by faith, not according to some other standard, but by faith. And so this division, what do we do with this division between Jew and Gentile? He says, first of all, God is one. And if God is one, secondly, that means God is the God of the Gentiles also. Not just the Jews. And so he asked that question, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. You see, they they didn't just believe that they worshipped one God, that the Jews worshipped one God and there were others. That's a view called henotheism. And that's not what they believed. They understood there to be only one God. Not just one God for them, but only one God. And so if... Somebody believed, well, God is the God of the Jews only and for no one else. Then that leaves all the Gentiles with no God. There was no God for them. And we read again and again in the Old Testament. We see the expectation of the nations worshiping God. I read from Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. He is the God of Gentiles also. And then He becomes very explicit. At the end of 30, he says, Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Don't be thrown off in case you were tempted to be by the the, the difference in prepositions there, by faith or through faith. scholars think this is just a stylistic change of uh, 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 a particular, maybe poetic way to say this thing. There's not something intended by, oh, well, for the circumcised, it's by faith. But for the uncircumcised, it's through faith, as if that were somehow different. I don't believe that's the case. I believe in this instance they are synonymous. The point being all are justified in the same way, Jew and Gentile alike, which kind of sounds like what we've read repeatedly in the book. He's to preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is is salvation to all, the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's a recurring theme that happens in this book. And so right here he's just saying justification happens in the same way for all. And so you can take that and think about their context in which they were they were having struggles within their church they were having among other things they were having kind of battles struggles tension at the very least between Jew and Gentile within their church and Paul is trying to get rid of that barrier he's trying to do away with it and he says look there's only one God so he's the God of the Gentiles also like he's the God of the Jews and justification happens in the same way for the Jew and for the Gentile and so in application for us, we, we may not have the same barrier existing in our minds between Jew and Gentile like, like these people, the recipients of this book. But I will bet we have some other sort of barrier in our mind that you're happy to share the gospel with or you're happy to share the pew with this kind of person. But this other kind of person, nope. Let them have their own church. Let them hear the gospel some other way. But I don't want to sit by them. Or I don't want to share the gospel with them. Or I don't want to open up my heart to this particular kind of Christian brother or sister. We can't have that. Those barriers are done away. Those barriers are done away. We can no longer look at people like the world looks at people. I don't know if it's a class of people, if it's a particular background, I don't know if it's a color of skin, I don't know if it's uh, uh, some experience that they've had or not had. I don't have any idea what it is. Maybe it's the, the presence or the absence of some physical marker. I don't know. God looks at the heart and we need to do the same. And particularly For the brother or sister in Christ who is different from us, maybe they belong to this group, whatever that other group is in your mind that you'd rather not share a pew with. That is unacceptable in the kingdom of God. We have all been justified the same way. You didn't bring more to the table than this person that you naturally hate. You were a sinner deserving of the judgment of God just like that person was. And we stand right before God because of what Christ has done. And so those old barriers, whatever they are, cannot remain. Let's press on to verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now you can see... A little bit of a struggle here between the concepts of faith and law, right? Faith is is an open hand to receive something that's given. But the law makes demands of obedience. You see how those are such different principles? Faith is about receiving and trusting. And law is about doing and responsibility. So you can see this discussion of faith and law is a legitimate one. It's one that needs to be answered. Well, Paul answers it a couple of different ways in the book of Romans. And so later on, he's going to get into the topic of sanctification. Right now, he's really dwelling on justification, which is the doctrine of how we can have right standing before God. How you can be declared righteous before him by faith apart from works of the law. That's the doctrine of justification. There's also a doctrine we discussed that's important. It's called sanctification. And the concept of sanctification is that there is a working out in your life of this fact of justification. That we actually do have a new heart. We have a new Lord. We have a new Father, a new identity. And so we live accordingly. Our lives begin to change and come into line with our identity as Christians. That's the doctrine of sanctification. That's not what he's talking about here yet. He's talking about justification. He's talking about how we obtain right standing with God. How can a person be declared righteous before God? And so, this discussion of faith and law, we need to understand those concepts as we talk about this. And we look secondly so, as we think about faith and law, is it faith versus law? Do the two stand in opposition to one another? How do we relate the two together? Well, there might be two ways to pit law and faith against one another, especially after hearing the gospel as Paul has explained it. From the Jewish perspective, the Jewish reader might look down perhaps on Paul's understanding of justification by faith apart from works of the law because it sounds like it's setting aside the law of Moses and the law of Moses was given by God. Are you going to set aside the gift that God gave you? Of course not. And so someone coming from a Jewish perspective might think, Paul, your uh, doctrine of uh, justification by faith would encourage us to get rid of the law as if the law should never have been, as if there is no place for the law. And of course that would, that would cause him then to question Paul's doctrine on that regard. But there's a second way to look at this. A different reader, a Gentile reader perhaps, might hear Paul's gospel of justification by faith apart from works of the law and think, therefore, the law is null and void. Therefore, I don't have to do that stuff anymore. Therefore, I don't have to obey God. The whole concept of law is thrown out. So I'm just going to believe and live however I want. Right? So that person has also misunderstood what Paul is saying, only they've gone the opposite direction with it. So those are two possible ways for pitting faith and law against one another. And Paul says, do, do we overthrow the law by this faith? In either one of those two ways. He says, no, by no means, very strongly, no way. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, if I, I read a lot about this and stud, studied a lot about this and and uh, different scholars go different directions with it, but I got the most help from uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who uh, was a pastor who died probably 15, 20 years ago now, but he was, uh, he, he wrote some commentaries on this. It's a collection of his sermons. And I appreciated his understanding on this because he keeps in mind that what he's talking about here is not sanctification. See, there, there is one way when we think about sanctification that the Christian upholds the law. And that is that when we are God's child, as Christians, we have received new birth. We have a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, changing our desires so that now we want to obey him. And so we want to do what God says, and we want to do it from the heart. That's a fulfillment of God's law. But that's a discussion of sanctification. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. So I just want to make Three real quick points about how justification by faith establishes the law. Just three quick points. I don't want to dwell on them too long, but it's important for us to see them. Justification by faith establishes the law because it acknowledges that no sinner could meet the standard. Justification by faith recognizes, acknowledges that no sinner could meet the demands of the law. In order for a sinner to meet the law's standard, God would have to lower that standard. And so if there were some way to have justification before God by doing the law, given who we are as sinners, God would have to dumb the law down. He would have to bring it down some percentage. He would have to lower the standard to some degree. And by doing so, He is actually nullifying the law. He's saying, well, this this perfect standard... Actually, it wasn't perfect. It needed to be lowered, and so I'm going to take this one away, and I'm going to lower the law. But justification by faith acknowledges there is not a sinner who could meet God's righteous standard, and so by doing so, we acknowledge that the law is good and that it is right. So we establish the law. The gospel honors the perfect standard of the law. Two, justification by faith establishes the law because in it, the death penalty that's required for breaking the law has been paid in full and so justification by faith acknowledges that look breaking the law brings a penalty death there must be death the person who has broken God's law is guilty before God cannot stand before him and must suffer eternal punishment for it there must be death and the gospel honors the penalty of the law and says it has been met that penalty has been fully paid in Christ. And thirdly, justification by faith shows that the exact requirements of obedience to the law have been perfectly fulfilled by Christ. And so, the gospel of justification by faith honors and meets the law's standard. And so, you see, that our doctrine, the doctrine that Paul is teaching here, actually establishes the law in a way that no other doctrine could do. Because it recognizes no sinner can meet that law. And so thus we incur a penalty, but that penalty has been paid. And there still needs to be obedience of the law in order for us to have righteousness before God, and Jesus did that. So do we nullify the law? By no means. On the contrary, justification by faith establishes the law in a way that no other doctrine can. And so we come now to the Lord's table thinking about some of these consequences, some of these results of the gospel. Our boasting is done away with. The The divide uh, between us and others is nullified and the law is established. The law is established. And so God is holy and righteous and pure. And we... Get to stand before Him, justified by faith alone, apart from any contribution of our own, apart from works of the law. And so that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. We are calling to mind that the law is a perfect standard and that not a one of us in here could ever meet the law, could ever obey it. It is a perfect standard, and we are an imperfect people. We acknowledge that. And secondly, since we've broken the law, we we deserve the penalty. We acknowledge that. And thirdly, the law still must be obeyed. It must be fulfilled. Jesus has done so. He has paid the penalty for us in his own body. He has walked in obedience in his own life. And so the law is perfectly and ultimately established in him in the doctrine of justification by faith. And so as we come to the Lord's table, excuse me, we come to the Lord's table, we get to celebrate this together. So if the men who are going to serve would come forward, please.